Hey, Adam, what are you doing here? I thought you were on holiday. I thought you were on holiday too. I am. So am I. So... Yeah, step away from the poolside lounger and put down that mocktail. We better explain ourselves. Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 25th of June. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. And this is a bit of an unusual episode because, as we said, we're actually on leave this week. But we couldn't stand the thought of you missing out on one of our new weekly shows. So here's one we prepared earlier. Yeah, so since this episode was recorded a week ahead of time, we're really sorry if there's been a big breaking news story that we're not talking about. You know, if it turned out that Ashley Bloomfield was, in fact, a shape-shifting lizard. Yeah, or it's been discovered the virus really wasn't as bad as the flu after all. Yeah, or maybe it turned out that pangolins had been ruled out as a potential vector, and what scientists meant all along was penguins. Or, thank you, Big Potato, has searched number one in the charts. Now you're just being silly. What, was the flu thing too much? Anyway... Today we've got an extended interview with someone who's been right at the front line of New Zealand's COVID-19 response. That's right, but you won't have seen her at any press conferences or at a hospital or even one of those testing sites that's popped up. She's been in the lab. Lauren Jelly is a senior scientist in charge of the Clinical Virology Department based at ESR's National Centre for Biosecurity and Infectious Disease in Wellington. That job saw her actually physically handle New Zealand's first positive COVID-19 sample, a story that we'll get to. But she's also been growing the virus. Yeah, and she's got an interesting science origin story too. What got her hooked on becoming a scientist? So let's get on with it. Lauren Jelly. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us. Look, can we start with a really basic question? Why science? Why did you decide to become a scientist? It was actually the only thing I was good at at high school. And I watched the movie Outbreak and decided that that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to work with pathogens that cause disease and viruses are interesting. So that's why I got into that. Just remind people what Outbreak was about. In a remote African jungle, a small monkey is captured. So that was pretty much like Contagion, the movie. Ah, So there was an outbreak of a virus and they had to find out what it was, what was causing it, and try and pretty much what we're doing now, trying to stop it. I've been busily Googling Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo. (laughs) Remember her? She she sort of disappeared a bit. Um, And Morgan Freeman. And a a monkey, as far as I can tell, a very scary-looking monkey. Yeah, I think it was the Ebola virus from memory. Ah, okay. So can you describe to us what your job now is? So I lead the clinical virology department. So what we do here is we work with clinical samples and identifying the different viruses. So we work with the National Influenza Centre for New Zealand. For that, we run a influenza surveillance. So that's GPs around New Zealand will send us swabs, we'll test them for influenza. We'll type them. So influenza A, um, H1N1, H3N2. And we'll lineage type them. So for influenza B, there's two different lineages, which are Victoria and Yamagata. Um, And with those, the positive samples, we'll grow them up in cells and uh, we'll send them to the WHOCC in Melbourne. We also work with polio. 
So anyone who has potential for polio will get their sample and will test it. And we also do arbovirus work here. So arboviruses are mosquito-borne viruses. So we work with chikungunya, Zika and dengue. Do you get many polio cases? We don't actually. So polio is not endemic in New Zealand. So it's usually just travellers coming to, to New Zealand. Right. What's your favourite virus? Oh, um, gosh, it'll have to be influenza, which is just, it sounds very boring and it sounds very well researched, but considering it's so well researched, we've, we haven't gotten uh, very far. Like we don't have a universal vaccine yet. We have an annual vaccine, which at best shows 50% efficacy. So we're trying very hard to, to change that. Right, so let's wind the clock back to late February this year. New Zealand had been testing people for COVID for a little while, Mm -hmm. but it was on February 28th, I think, that the first test came back positive. And then a sample of that was sent on to you at ESR in Wellington. So what did you do with it from there? Okay, so the sample came to us and we knew that it was positive already. So we test two different genes. We test for the E gene, which is a screening gene, and we also test for the N gene. So if the two are positive, it gives a confirmed result. So Auckland sent down the sample and we tested it. It was positive for both. So we, it was just acting to confirm that sample. What was it like handling that? very first test there was a lot riding on it so we knew that it was positive already and it was coming down and it was really a test of our PPE so um, PPE is personal protective equipment and we've done the risk analysis at this stage we know that we're very well protected but it's very different having all this PPE on and performing um, on samples that are coming in that you don't know are positive. And then when you're handling one that is positive, you're like, all right, yep, okay, I'm doing everything perfect for this one. But it's kind of weird because you've done everything perfect for the previous ones. It's just that you've got in, this he- in your head that this one's positive and, you know, you should do everything right. I guess it's the difference between walking along a wobbly log on the ground or a thousand feet up in the air. It's the same process, but the consequences are much different, I guess. Yeah. Um, and because we were doing a lot of the samples at the start, a lot of them were negative as well. So, you know, it gives you this false sense that everything's going to be negative. But yeah. You know, there's, there's positives out there. So after that, New Zealand really started ramping up testing. Did your lab do any or, or many of those higher volume tests? We did at the start. So uh, we're not a high throughput lab here. So we do everything manually. So all of our extractions are manual. Wellington SEL hadn't had a test until end of February, start of March. So we were doing all of the Wellington region's samples up until that point. Once those other labs started taking over the the high volume testing, your lab moved on, didn't it, to to actually growing some fresh COVID-19 of your own. So for me, growing microbes in a lab makes me think of those school experiments where you put your dirty fingers onto little plates of agar jelly and you come back (laughs) a week later and it's covered in fluffy bacteria and weird pink things and brown things. I'm guessing that growing viruses, growing COVID-19 is a bit different from that. So can you walk us through the process of how you grow COVID-19? 
Sure. Okay. So um, first you have to grow cells and this can be done in a PC2 lab, physical containment level two. But when you're actually growing SARS-CoV-2, you have to be in a PC3, so a physical containment level three lab. So it just has um, added security so viruses don't come out. So um, the cells that we use to grow SARS-CoV-2 are Vero cells, and these come from an African green monkey. Originally, we, we buy them in. We don't go sourcing monkeys for these. So we buy these cells and we put them with a media and put them into a tube and the cells will settle on the surface of the tube and then they'll start to grow. So the cells will multiply and you get a monolayer, so a single layer of cells on the bottom of the tube. Mm -hmm. We then take that tube into PC3 along with a sample of our virus. Okay, pause there. I need to know more about the monkeys. Which part of the monkeys are you growing in there? It's the kidney cells. Kidney cells. Okay. I was just imagining you growing monkey brains and them becoming autonomous and walking. Anyway, carry on, carry on. <laughs> right. So we take the tube into PC3 along with our virus and we dilute it down, put the virus on these cells and that virus gets absorbed into the cells so they get infected. Mm-hmm. We put more media on top and then we put them into an incubator for about three days So that virus will then go into the cells and it will multiply and it will come out. And that's how we grow it. Right. And so you need the monkey cells because viruses kind of aren't alive. They don't grow autonomously. They need something to to hijack. Is that right? Yeah. And so what happens to to the cells when they're getting infected? I mean, we're reading all about all the horrible things that happen to the human body when they've got COVID in them. What happens to the, the kidney cells inside the flask? The virus goes into the cell and the cell reproduces the virus. Um, It then explodes, it breaks apart, and you can see this, and this is how you can tell that a virus is growing, is that when you look at the tube down a microscope, you're looking for something called CPE, which is cytopathic effect. And this is when the cells explode and lift off the bottom of the tube. Right. And you can just see them floating around. And it causes holes in the monolayer of cells that you had on the bottom of the tube. So the more um, cells lift off, the more your virus is growing. Your team has become good at growing coronaviruses. Really basic question, why grow it at all? What's what's the point? There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of downstream applications for use. So we are doing whole genome sequencing here as well, not my team, a different team. And to do next-gen sequencing, you need quite a bit of virus in the clinical samples that they've been doing it on. Um, and if those... Uh, samples don't have enough virus to do next-gen sequencing, then we can grow those samples to high enough TTIPs, so more virus, that we can do next-gen sequencing on. And this information can be used to see how SARS-CoV-2 is you know, progressing, what kind of mutations has it got, what strains do we have here, and just certain things like that that we can... Uh, share this information globally. What are the qualities that make someone a good virus grower? 
the person in my lab, uh, my staff member, is Jackie Rolston, who's growing the virus along with Wendy Gunn. So Jackie Rolston, she's been working in virus culture for over 30 years. She's really good. She knows what she's doing. And when she was training me when I first started, uh, she likened it to gardening. All right. Yeah, so if you can grow uh, a plant, you can grow cells to infect with viruses. I kill plants a lot, so I, I'm not going to consider a career as a virus grower. But, um... <laughs> so do I, actually. I've got a graveyard of plant pots. And I told this to her, and she's like, oh, no, you need to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> so in practical terms, I'm just thinking what makes someone have a green fingers. Is that things like being observant, being careful, remembering to do all the things at the right time? Is it that kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. So what you have to know is that cells are a living thing um, and you can't be too rough. You know, you can't pipette them up and down too much to break them. You know, you want them to be whole because then they can multiply and give you that monolayer. You produce a whole pile of viruses. You're giving them to various people to do things with. When you pass them on, they've been inactivated, which I guess means kind of killed. How does that work? How do you inactivate a virus but still leave it in a state where you can do useful things with it? To do next-gen sequencing, you need the RNA. So the RNA is inside the envelope of SARS-CoV-2 virus. So you need to break open that envelope. Um, so how the virus gets into a cell is that on this envelope, it can attach to cells. So if you break open the envelope, it can't actually attach to cells and then, you know, inject the RNA into there to grow. So we need to destroy that envelope. Luckily, SARS-CoV-2, that envelope is a lipid bilayer. So lipid is just a fancy term for fat. Mm. So we kill it pretty much or we... Uh, remove the envelope kind of with um, a detergent. So it's just a lysis buffer. Right. So you're sort of removing the, the mechanism that's used to attach to cells and, and attack humans. And you've got all the genetic material, but it's no longer in a dangerous form. Exactly. You could be a scientist. You explain it a lot better than I do. <laughs> Uh, Eugene is is uh, doing a hallelujah because that was um, that was his question that he wrote that I just read. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the middle of a pandemic, and in New Zealand at least, there's almost no coronavirus in the wild. And I've seen enough Hollywood movies, I've I've seen outbreak and contagion to know that bugs sometimes escape from labs. So w what is the riskiest part? of the whole process that you've described earlier around um, growing viruses and distributing them? Yeah, so the riskiest part would be that we don't inactivate it all and it comes out. Uh, and we've got um, steps to prevent this. So uh, we are running experiments at the moment um, about heat inactivation. We, because this is a different method uh, to inactivate the virus, um, we know that the lysis buffer works. Um, and our PC3 facility is a shower-out facility. So when you go in there, uh, you actually have to undress and walk things through, uh, get dressed in specific clothes for PC3. Mm -hmm. You then um, grow your virus, and then you inactivate it with your lysis buffer. Those samples, so um, because you want to make sure that there's no virus on the outside of the of the plastic vials, mm -hmm. so they get dunked into another form of uh, detergent to kill everything, mm -hmm. um, and this is accelerated hydrogen peroxide. 
Right. They get um, put in there for about 10 minutes. You then have to shower out and then get dressed in your clothes again. So you can't take virus inadvertently out on your clothes or your shoes or your glasses because none of that has gone into PC3 where the live virus is being grown. It's quite the process. It really is, yeah. (laughs) ESR is now involved, as you've mentioned, with this work sequencing the genomes of all New Zealand's positive COVID-19 cases and, and tracking how the virus spread across New Zealand. What do those different genomes tell us? What can you see in them? Because globally, everyone is sharing their data. We can see where the virus has come from and uh, we can see how it's changing within New Zealand. There's been several different, um, oh, I guess you can call them strains that have come into New Zealand. So several different entry points um, of the virus. And we can see this through little um, mutations in the virus. So these accumulate and you can grow branches of a tree. It's called phylogenetics. Uh, so you can see where it comes in, um, what accumulated mutations are happening um, and, you know, where you can associate it to a cluster um, just based on, you know, looking at the sequence of it. Wow. So it's sort of a bit of a family tree almost. So this coronavirus story has a very long way to go. New Zealand has a border to monitor. There are teams all over the world racing to make vaccines and all the time the virus itself is spreading and changing. So what's next for your lab? So we will change into more of a serology assays. Once um, positive cases die down, you want to see just how much people were affected in in the population. So there's people you would have heard that are asymptomatic. Uh, they show no symptoms. They wouldn't have gotten a diagnostic swab done. So we wouldn't know, you know, if they were positive or not. So you do serology assays to see if they were positive through antibodies in their blood. Do you think the kid who watched Outbreak could ever have imagined being the scientist who's actually handled a virus like COVID-19 that's had such a devastating impact on the world? Yeah, it is an interesting question. So I think when you're the kid um, watching that movie, uh, you would see you know, the glory and how exciting it would be like, oh my gosh, here's a new virus and how exciting it would be to hunt this down and find out all about it. But living through it, um, you know, part of it is exciting for sure. But part of it is, um, you know, people have lost their jobs. Uh, businesses have failed and you, you kind of see all this to it and you're like, well, actually, no, pandemics aren't that exciting. Um, I wish they had never come about. <laughs> mm. Nonetheless, I'm glad that you're at the front line doing that important work. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren Jolly. Thank you so much for having me. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 25th of June. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Lauren Jolly, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms as usual. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link that you'll find on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Thanks for tuning in to the second of our weekly versions of the show. We'll be back next Thursday. Vaid kolu. Vaid kolu.